Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, October 12th. Is it time to start cutting back on those costly monthly subscription services? We catch up with personal finance wizard Bruce Celery for some tips on how to bring down your household expenses and navigate the expensive holiday season ahead. Canada is currently building fewer homes today than during the pandemic. What can be done to increase the number of homes being built to address the housing crisis? We tackle the topic with David McDonald, senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And finally, do you like food? How about wine? If you answered yes to either or both of those questions, you'll want to check out the Rocky Mountain Food and Wine Festival this weekend. We get details on the tasty event from festival director Fiona Standing. You've forgotten all about that free trial that you signed up for that has quietly turned into a monthly subscription? How does that happen? Monthly subscriptions can be an easy way to forget about uh, what's uh, costing you money, uh, kind of in a phantom way. Joining us to help us cut back on spending is financial wizard Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada. Good morning to you. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Good morning. You're a wizard, I just said. I, I love that you said I'm a wizard, provided that moniker comes with a costume. Oh, I like, okay. Well, let's just tis the season, and we're going to talk about maybe the cost of Halloween in a second. But let's uh, dig into that first and foremost. I have seen many times, whether it's an app or a subscription to one of the many streaming services, you get that trial, and you think, this is pretty good, not going to cost me a yeah. penny. The asterisk does say, after 30 days or 10 days or two weeks, whatever, we're going to start charging you. You can cancel at any time, but that's only if you remember, Bruce. Uh-huh. And so you have to make sure you remember. I'm quite disciplined about that. I put a note in my calendar to do that. So mm. hooray for all those who do that. But sometimes that's not enough. I signed up for this $2 trial for a news service, put it in my calendar to cancel. Then I go to cancel. And the only way to cancel is to call their call center during regular business hours. <laughs> the easiest thing in the world to sign up for this thing, the hardest thing in the world to cancel it. So, you know, I think what businesses have learned is the harder they make it for us to cancel, the lower the likelihood that we will, which is infuriating. And in fact, in the U.S., they're starting to look at some regulations on this front. And I hope Canada seriously considers it because, you know, newsletters, right? Like you sign up for newsletters. And if you don't want to receive the newsletter anymore, on the bottom of every single one of them is an unsubscribe button. Why? Because it's required. They have to do that. So I would love to see some standards on how we can cancel subscriptions of which we all have so many. And Bruce, if it's just you, if you're living, if you're flying solo, living by yourself, you can pick and choose those subscriptions, for example, when it comes to streaming and, and make those choices. Uh, but if you have more than one person in the house, it becomes almost like a meeting of the UN General Council deciding, <laughs> yes. or like, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, the weakest link. You are the weakest. Who, who, what sort of conversation and how should we set that scene to uh, make that plan in a family? Well, I think in every family, there are a lot of spending decisions that really affect everybody. It goes back to groceries, vacations, what we do on a house renovation. And I, I, it, every family is different. I think and the age of the family members are different. So uh, the people who earn the income, it probably starts with them to set the scene. But in many families, having a collaborative discussion about what we value is actually, first of all, it's 
helpful for the spending, but it's also very helpful from a financial literacy standpoint, especially if you have young people at home. So to kind of lay it out there and say, okay, we love all these subscription services, but do we need Netflix, Disney, Crave, Prime, Paramount, <laughs> all the things? We don't need all of the things, so let's make some choices, and we can also dip in and dip out. So when there's a show on a streaming service that we don't have, let's stockpile those shows. And in a couple of months, we're going to cancel one and get the other. Now, some people would argue these aren't huge amounts of money, like they're under 20 bucks a month, but they really do add up. And more importantly, is the notion that you're paying for something that you don't fully use. And this is a really critical life lesson for young people to learn. Do we... Do we be brutally honest with our kids? And what I'm getting at is if money is tight, do you say, hey, kids, money is tight. We can't afford this. Or, or does that scare kids? How does that work? I think uh, honesty is important. I would make that point even if money isn't tight. So, you know, listen, uh, it is important for people to make choices given scarce resources. And even if you've got, you know, the hundred bucks a month for those four streaming services, it doesn't mean you should have them because really it's important to teach young people. It's important for grownups to be thoughtful and intentional about how they spend their money. Incredible points because, yeah, in the end, yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you have to. I like that. We yeah. were having a discussion behind the scenes here, Bruce, how, you know, you look at Christmas and it's easy to say this is the most expensive time of the year. But what underscored it for me is the fact that Thanksgiving, maybe you had 10 people over. Well, that cost a penny or two. Then yeah. whether or not you have kids, you're giving out candy, maybe putting up some decorations. And if you have kids, the costumes enter. And then, yes, around the corner, Christmas is this, in your opinion, the most expensive time of the year, the stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Oh, it is for sure the most expensive time of the year. It is the period in which people put lots and lots of stuff on their credit card and then wake up in late January when the bills come in and see that they cannot pay that amount off. And so I love that we're getting ahead of this. This is mid-October. I am not a fan of Christmas decorations going up until after Halloween, so I'll say that, but I would not argue with people who are thinking about Christmas now or holiday season now from a spend standpoint. Because you really have to kind of think about what is it that's really important to us? How are how much are we going to spend on those things? And if we can't pay it off, you know, when that bill comes in right away, what steps are we going to take to ensure that we can pay that credit card bill off, you know, in a month or two after it comes in? Because you don't want to be thinking about Christmas next July because you're still paying the bill for it. Okay, so so do we set a limit per person or do we set a, just a giant pot limit of how much I'm going to spend at Christmas? It is so individual to the family. I think what is the most critical question is what do we value about Christmas? What is, if it's Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever it is that you celebrate over the course of um, the December, January period, what's really important? And for some people, it's really important to have stuff to rip open when they, you know, Christmas morning, that's really, really important. Great. For some people, it's not. And they're in a habit of it, especially as um, young kids becomes become teens, ripping open over the ripping open the present may be less important, but what would really be great would be a family outing. So you're going to go see a show, you're going to see a concert, you're going to spend some time together. Think about the values and have your spending align to the values. 
Okay, and I know we, we've brought this up before, but I think it's important. I think that, you know, the work that you do is fantastic. It's a resource people might not know about, creditcanada.com. But I, I think that there's this, you know, thought in the back of your head that people go and talk to somebody like yourself or, you know, somebody uh, a like Institute like Credit Canada when you're basically going to go bankrupt. Is yeah. that the time or do you have those conversations no. earlier? Well earlier. Here's here's the thing. If someone has a level of debt that they have a hard time managing, they should pick up the phone and call us. It's very, very simple because we counsel 10,000 people a year and we help them think about budgeting and trade-offs. We answer all sorts of questions about credit score and accessing uh, lower costs of debt. There is a subset of those callers who really need a different solution and we offer something called a debt consolidation program where we bring all the debt into to one place and they pay it off through us for one amount, but the lenders give them a break on their interest rates. That is a program that unfolds over the course of years. It affects your credit score, but it can really help people get back on track. For those who are in a situation in which a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy filing makes sense, mm -hmm. we will make a referral to a licensed insolvency trustee. But don't wait. Don't wait. A lot of times people call us and they're desperate. Call us before you're desperate and find out what's going on. And maybe there are some things that you can do such that you won't have to take a more dramatic step. Calling me desperate? Uh, listen, I would never okay. make that accusation, right. even if it is an accurate description <laughs> of how you live. Uh, thank you so much. You make it sound so common sense. For a lot of us, it's the dollars and cents cloud everything. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. You too. It's Bruce Celery. We call him the financial wizard around these parts. He's CEO of Credit Canada. You can check out what he does at creditcanada.com or his personal website, moolala.ca. That's M-O-O-L-A-L-A dot C-A. No surprise, Canada needs to build more homes. But what is surprising is that we are actually building fewer homes today than during the pandemic. That's according to a recent report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And joining us to discuss the issue is David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Can you summarize the key findings and what stood out to you on this uh, report? Yeah, I mean, there's a predictable impact of interest rates on new residential investment. It's actually one of the ways that interest rates reduces economic growth is it tanks new residential investment, which is to say building new homes. Uh, and it's been working as designed. Um, now, while governments of all stripes, provincial, federal, have been trying to incentivize the private sector to build more houses, um, the Bank of Canada has been doing the exact opposite with interest rates. And we've actually been building a lot fewer houses and we've seen a lot less residential investment. And this is true across the board. So single family homes is the area that has been hit the hardest, uh, down by a third uh, since rate hikes started. Uh, Semi-detached, down by a quarter. Row houses are about flat, uh, but apartment buildings down by uh, down by a fifth since uh, the rate hike started. Um, if you compare instead to when the rate hike started, which is February of last year, if you want to go back to April of 2020, this was the depths of the pandemic when parts of the industry were straight up shut down in parts of the country. Um, in every single one of these categories, we're building 
fewer homes today than we were in the worst of the pandemic, which was April of 2020. And so you've got you know, two parts of government very much at odds. Um, governments and a lot of Canadians think we should be building more houses. Uh, the Bank of Canada, uh, via interest rate hikes, uh, is saying to builders, build a lot fewer houses. Mm. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from you that we uh, put the lion's share of, of this impact on the Bank of Canada. Uh, but are there other factors, uh, for example, I'm thinking supply chain or, you know, lack of employees? So this is the, the big driver I was looking at here was the impact of interest rates on construction. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> it affects on the buyer side. You think, you know, buyers can't pay the same amount as they could have two years ago for a house because their monthly mortgage payments are much higher at these much higher interest rates. Uh, that's true for individual home buyers or condo buyers. But it's also going to be true um, for, say, a business that's trying to, to uh, buy a uh, apartment building. For instance, it's recently constructed, uh, and it affects builders on the other side too, right? I mean, builders have to carry the costs of these houses, apartment buildings, and so on prior to their sale, uh, and the costs to carry that expense over time as you're building it, you know, over the two years, say, that you're building it, that's gone through the roof. Uh, there are other pieces, certainly, that are affecting builders, the cost of things like lumber uh, or the cost of labor. Uh, those have been high for some time. And we did see a big uh, boom, actually, in new residential construction uh, in the summer of 2021. So this was kind of making up for lost time, as it were, um, because of the, the shutdowns in 2020. Um, and so those were still in play. I mean, these higher costs in terms of uh, you know, the raw materials were very much in play in 2021. Uh, but nonetheless, builders managed to build, uh, you know, a, had record investment actually in that summer. So it appears to me, and uh, we're speaking with David McDonald, by the way, senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, seems to me that some of those outside factors, such as, you know, whether, whether or not supply chain or specialized materials that we need and are having trouble getting or are at a premium outside of our borders, that's, that's one part of it. Uh, but really, the only thing that could make an impact is the Bank of Canada. So uh, the government uh, could do something like this, uh, but do you foresee it happening? Happening. Well, you could see like a substitution if the government really switch or governments. I mean, we're, we're talking here. It could be federal, could be provincial. I mean, all governments think are concerned about this uh, to substitute for the lack of private sector investment by, say, providing subsidized mortgages. You think of like a zero percent mortgage offered by federal or provincial governments to a nonprofit provider to build new affordable housing, for instance, uh, or governments building it themselves. Um, you know, we certainly have governments build roads and bridges and that sort of thing um, at government expense and then maybe pay back, pay it back over time through tolls or something like that. Uh, housing's like that as well. I mean, the government could build housing uh, and then recoup its investment via rents over, over time. Now, of course, these are this is something that um, is going to affect us for a while. The decline is happening now, but we're going to see it sort of in two years time when those buildings would have otherwise been completed. Um, there are also, but this is sort of longer term changes, trying to substitute in um, public money for, for private money. Shorter term, um, rent, you know, rents and cost of housing is still through the roof. And this isn't going to change uh, at all. I mean, interest rates are part of that problem as well. Interest rates are driving up. Um, the cost to, to carry a house if you've got a mortgage or to rent. Um, and so there are other things on the uh, short-term side that we could be doing. Uh, things like um, moving 
say, uh, apartment buildings that are in the for-profit sector into the non-profit sector. So providing um, non-profit housing providers with, again, the super low interest loans. Um, so they could outbid the private sector, move them into the nonprofit sector and reduce rents. Um, things like rent controls can be an important tools. I mean, Alberta doesn't have rent controls. Other provinces have them, but in some cases, there, you know, there's loopholes to them. Um, and so, you know, I think we do need to think long term, short term. And we do need to change uh, when we think about building housing. The private sector isn't going to do it at this point with really high interest rates. We need we need to sub in the public sector. Um, and we haven't seen that shift yet in thinking, but uh, hopefully it's coming. All right, let's bring it back to the Bank of Canada and uh, the interest rate that is uh, seems like the biggest driver with this issue, David. Uh, and I know that it wasn't a flick of the switch, like you mentioned. It goes back to February of last year, to where we are today, October of 2023. So it wouldn't be a flip of a switch, but can we draw a parallel to lower interest rates, even if it's by a point or half a point, whatever it might be, and how quickly we'll see things uh, uh, come back? Is, is there some kind of a parallel there? Yeah, there are there are substantial lag times on interest rates, uh, interest rate hikes and, and how long it takes them to impact the economy. So, you know, the maximum impact of rate hikes, uh, sorry, of rate hikes on new residential investment, which is what we're talking about here, takes about two years. Um, and so the big, you know, we, rate hikes started in March of last year, but they didn't really pick up steam till the summer. So we're really about a year into the big rate hikes. Um, we're not even at the two-year mark where you, you might expect to continue to see declines in new residential construction. Um, now, if things were to reverse, there's a delay there as well on the other side, right? Because a bunch of folks have had to refinance their mortgages at these much higher interest rates and they've locked in for a couple of years. You know, folks have had to get new, um, uh, you know, new apartments and lock in their rents for a one-year term or something like that. Uh, and so it does take, take some time, but certainly if we saw interest rates fall, um, that would aid in housing affordability in terms of the people that are already in housing. It would probably boost the price of houses on the other side, unfortunately. Uh, it would probably encourage more new residential investment. I just don't think that we're on the horizon of a one-point rate cut. Um, you know, we've got another decision coming up from the Bank of Canada at the end of this month, and we'll have the inflation data come out just a couple days before. Um, the previous month's worth of inflation data was pretty, you know, was 4%, which is well above uh, what the Bank of Canada thought it was going to be at, at about 3%. I'm concerned that we're going to see another number, you know, maybe 3.5%, and that the bank will see that uh, as saying, you know, the rate hikes so far haven't worked. And, you know, I think we may be on the cusp of seeing another rate hike at the end of this month, not a rate decrease, which would help some of these issues, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, uh, we're all in this together, unfortunately. I know that sounds cliche, but I've never, it never occurred to me that the BOC, you know, could be the issue when it comes to the housing shortage and the building uh, shortage at this point. Thank you so much for your insight, David. We appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Do you like food? How about wine? If you answered yes to either or both, you'll want to check out the Rocky Mountain Food and Wine Festival this weekend. With full details, we're joined by Fiona Standing, Director of the Rocky Mountain Food and Wine Festival. Very good morning to you, Fiona. 
Morning, Andy. How are you? Good, good. I am familiar with this event. I've, I've been. It's been years, but I like what you got going on there. Uh, for those folks who haven't been, what is the Rocky Mountain Food and Wine Festival? Yeah, we're back in the city for our 26th year and really excited. Um, for people who haven't been, we have a collection of amazing wine, spirits, beer, um, over 30-plus restaurants that you can sip and sample. This year, we have 200-plus uh, new-to-market beverages, 300 different wines, 270 spirits with such a wide variety. Um, we're really excited to be back. So how does it work? Is this something where I come in and, uh, and I buy tickets to sample what I want? Uh, you know, how, how much do I know how much time to spend there? And, and, and should I bring friends? So many questions for you, Fiona. Well, uh, friends, great question. I think when it comes to food and beverage, it's something you love to enjoy with your community. So we recommend coming down and making in the night uh, with your girlfriend, with your uh, partner, with your family, of course, of legal drinking age. Um, and yeah, you can really pick your own journey. Um, it's not just for wine lovers. We have, like I mentioned, a collection of wine, spirits, and beer. Um, and you can pick what you love and uh, really tailor it uh, through the purchase of sampling coupons that can be redeemed for anything we have on site. Incredible. Uh, you know, uh, how do you choose? It's got to be tough because you have so much variety there. How are the vendors chosen to attend? Oh, uh, very good question. Um, we definitely want to focus on uh, quality and selection. Um, we have people pouring from everything from like beautiful tequilas all the way through to premium products like a 40-year Glen Parkless Scotch. Really, we want to focus on quality and making sure that there's something there for everyone. Even for those people who don't are looking for a good time and they don't drink, there's non-alcoholic beverages and there's so much food that you can pick from. Um, there's really so much that we have to offer. Absolutely. And I do like how you can you know, just walk on booth to booth, do what you want, change things up a bit. Um, as far as the opportunities, more than a couple opportunities to check it out, isn't there? So if you can break down the dates and times, because I know that you can go different times during the day a lot of the times, but not just that, uh, the fact that you can uh, get your tickets online or ahead. Uh, yeah, we still have some tickets available. They are limited, um, so make sure you run fast to RockyMountainWine.com. We are running at the BMO Center um, on Friday, October 13th and a Saturday, October 14th. Um, we run two sessions. So on Friday, it runs from 5.30 until 10 p.m. On Saturday, we have two opportunities, one from 12 until 4 p.m. and another from uh, 6 until 10 p.m. No excuse not to check it out. RockyMountainWine.com, that's the best place to go? That's the best place to go. Fantastic. Now I am very interested. My weekend is planned. Thank you uh, very much, Fiona. We appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Fiona Standing is director of the Rocky Mountain Food and Wine Festival. And uh, one more time, you can uh, go and check it out. RockyMountainWine.com.